Now that is how you change the cinematic experience. And every single young filmmaker with a desire to create cinema has to go to the school of the Wachowskis. That is such an iconic scene. And I'm pretty sure it is probably going to, yeah, I mean, not pretty sure, but it is going to go down as one of the greatest uh, cinematic scenes in movie history. What is up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of me talking all things movies. My name is River Villy from Legit Cool where I recap, review, analyze, and rank movies. And today I am jumping into the first of many retro reviews, and I'm going to be doing that with the Matrix trilogy. It's fitting because Matrix 4, a.k.a. Matrix Resurrections, is just around the corner. It's going to finish out the year of a pretty good year of film, I'd say. Not a lot of great films, but you could probably use the excuse of the pandemic um, we're going to close out the year with a massive, highly anticipated Matrix Resurrections. So, I mean, unless you consider Steven Spielberg's uh, remake of The West Side Story a big deal, some might not. I actually don't mind West Side Story. Not one of my favorite musicals, but I definitely don't mind it, and I'll definitely go see Steven Spielberg's new iteration. But... Um, yeah, we're going to get into the Matrix trilogy, and I'm actually really excited because this will be the first time I've actually reviewed the Matrix. So uh, re-watching it again has just brought a lot of memories back from when I first watched it in the cinema and then watching it with friends later on as you're sort of growing up. And it's it's become one of those films where you do grow up with it and you're always learning something new. And especially when you're an adult, you can understand the story a lot better. So uh, without further ado, I really want to get cracking into this. So let's just roll the intro. Man, the Matrix. I actually wish I had some other people to talk to. Um, or talk with, I should say, about this film. Because this movie has a lot, and, and it, um, it shaped and influenced a lot of filmmakers, writers, directors. Um, it shaped the vision, I suppose, and how people would see cinema in the new light, because it definitely changed cinema forever when this movie came out. This movie came out in 1999, March 31st, and um, it was it was an interesting period because that was a year before the Y2K and um, everybody was freaking out with um, the world turning into the uh, 2000s, going from the 20th century and birthing into the 21st century eventually. I remember like the year of 2000, everybody was freaking out about this Y2K bug and blah, blah, blah. And um, I was still a kid, you know, I think I was like 12, 13 years old at the time. So you can do the math on and figure out how old I am now. Um, but yeah, the, this was the year before that. And the interesting thing about The Matrix is that it, it presents a lot of existentialism. It presents um, a lot of sort of philosophical inquiry. And it gets you thinking about what is the, what, how do we define reality? How do we define our lives? And how do we define our purpose in this life? Um, that's what The Matrix brought up. And it's definitely a film that is way beyond its years. It was kind of like the equivalent to 
Um, I don't know. I'm thinking of Tony Stark, <laughs> but I think I'm only thinking of Tony Stark because Tony Stark is a futurist, and the mutri- then the Matrix is somewhat of an embodiment of Tony Stark being a futurist. It's a film beyond its years, and it's it's incredible what the Brutality's done with this. Um, so yeah, there's there's so much to talk about in this in this film, and I've made quite a lot of notes. Uh, you know, when you're watching from the comfort of your own home, you get to whip out your phone and just write a whole bunch of notes. Because I'd hate to do this in the cinema. I have a very very strict rule of no no phone usages whatsoever. And I get really annoyed when I see phones getting used in cinema. Um, I've actually like shouted at a few people. Maybe not shouted, but <laughs> I've uh, I've had some strong intent behind my words when I say, "Hey, turn off your phone." Um, yeah, so I made a lot of notes here, and it's it's going to be fun to get through them. But um, let's just to give a bit of background and to get into the story, synop- get into the synopsis of this film. Uh, Nia believes that Morpheus. An elusive figure considered to be the most dangerous man alive can answer his question, what is the Matrix? Neo is contacted by Trinity, a beautiful stranger who leads him into an underworld where he meets Morpheus. They fight a brutal battle for their lives against a cadre of viciously intelligent secret agents. It is a truth that could cost Neo something more precious than his life. That's an interesting synopsis. I got this from Rotten Tomatoes, actually. They kind of throw me off with having all the, um, the real names in brackets next to the character names. That's why I was pausing too much. <laughs> um, so as this film actually explains its synopsis through uh, Rotten Tomatoes, and I guess all the other websites are very similar to how they describe the synopsis, it's, it's a very, very basic film. It's a very linear a piece of storytelling. And I remember when this movie came out, well, I should say like when I was re-watching this film years ago, you sort of, Matrix is always that film that you watch every year. You almost like, it's like an annual celebration for cinema lovers, especially. And some of the Matrix fanatics would probably be watching this like every month or whatever. Um, but it's, it's um, you know, sort of the more you watch it each time, you start to piece together that this film is less confusing to how it was maybe conceived or, sorry, not conceived, how it was uh, received by audiences. If you ask anybody, did you watch The Matrix when it first came out? They would probably give you that common response of, yeah, I did. It was really, really cool, but really confusing. (laughs) I have no idea what was going on. Um, And perhaps I kind of felt the same when I first watched it, but it was a little unfair because I was – I, I was literally getting into my teens at the time that the movie was coming out. And the only thing that was a standout for me were the visuals. Um, so you could say that the general consensus, whether you're a young teenager or getting into your teens like myself, um, growing up with the film, or you're an adult, everybody was saying that the visuals is unbelievable. It's nothing like we've ever seen before. And as cliched as that might sound, uh, nothing we've ever seen before. If there was one movie that could take that um, cliche definition or that cliche statement, it's The Matrix because they literally gave us something we have never actually seen before. 
you know, there's countless things like bullet time, there's slow-mo scenes, there's jumping from one building to another. Um, there's these action set pieces that we have not seen in cinema before. And when you, when you describe it, it's, it doesn't actually give it justice. You know, I'm sort of listening to myself describing this. You have to see it because like, um, what makes these scenes special is the filming techniques themselves. Um, anybody could actually shoot those scenes and, and and you sort of step back and go, okay, that looks nice. I mean, one person jumping from one building to another and then there's a person like suspended in midair and there's bullets going really slow. I suppose that seems somewhat normal in the nature of action films, but it's more so the technique that they applied and the visual effects they applied to make these scenes something like we've actually never seen before. So incredibly spectacular. And um, there's there's just an incredible amount of innovation that happens in this film. Um, yeah, super impressive. So this movie came out in March 31st, 1999 worldwide. Um, it started to actually stream for the first time in 2007 on May 15th. Um, it's total... Its total box office worldwide came to $465,377,200 worldwide box office. And I think it continues to um, increase in that because there are cinemas around the world that would, uh, you know, maybe show it once a year or um, have some kind of uh, uh, honorary <laughs> schedule to re-release in the cinema. Because um, I've actually been to some cinemas where they do that. And... Um, this uh, this movie is also directed by the Wachowskis. Back then, they were the Wachowski brothers. Now, they are the Wachowski sisters. Well, I don't even know if you say the Wachowski sisters, but yeah, they're the Wachowskis. Um, and they also wrote this film as well. So, the interesting thing about this movie is that there's so many there's so many interesting facts, um, and these facts are that they're, <laughs> they're pretty crazy. I, n- I never actually knew this information about the film. The most outstanding fact of this film is that when the Wachowskis presented this movie to Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers basically said, hey, we'll give you $10 million to make this. They doubted the Wachowskis at first. Um, when they presented the story, they basically said to the Wachowskis that we couldn't um, – we're not really going to give you much because you don't have any directorial experience. And it's true that Wachowski's never had any directorial experience prior to the matrix. Um, the, then Warner brothers pitched that they'll give them $10 million to make this film. What the Wachowski's done is they use that entire $10 million to craft, direct, write, and, and put in all the visual effects um, that you see in the opening sequence. You know, the opening sequence I'm talking about that with Trinity, the agents, and um, how Trinity trying to escape the agents. That whole opening scene is $10 million of their budget that they spent to go back to Warner Brothers and say, this is what we came up with. And the Warner Brothers was so impressed by that $10 million used that they gave them $80 million to make the entire film. That's pretty crazy. That is pretty damn crazy. It's almost kind of like that. Um, it's a similar story to uh, Peter Jackson when he, he was pitching Lord of the Rings to multiple studios and everybody said no um, because they didn't believe in the project. 
uh, New Line Cinema decided to give Peter Jackson this humble, um, small from a small town young filmmaker Peter Jackson um, the budget to be able to create his what now turns out to be a masterpiece in cinema. Uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and those other cinemas, those other production companies must be kicking themselves because uh, they turned down those opportunities. But anyway, nonetheless, um, some other ch- interesting things about the Matrix is that Bullet Time, the most famous swirling shot of Neo's gravity-defying backbend, was made using a rig that contained 120 individual digital still cameras and two film cameras. Again, that is using 120 individual digital cameras, still cameras, and only two film cameras. The still images were carefully stitched together to create the shot frame by frame. The first test shot of the bullet time effect gave a nearly 360-degree view of an exploding trash can. That is crazy. I mean, no wonder wonder why the, the final effect in the film has so much impact because the effort that they put to create this. And um, I don't know who out of the Wachowski sisters came up with this, whether it was Lana or um, Lily. (laughs) I wonder who takes the credit for coming up with this creativity to have this type of uh, effect for bullets um, where the agents or, or actually it's just near that has this kind of effect. The agents have a different type of effect when they're dodging bullets but it's just crazy. Some crazy creativity. Um, as far as Neo's casting, Keanu Reeves wasn't actually the first person. Nicolas Cage, Will Smith, Tom Cruise, and Johnny Depp were also considered before they reached out to Keanu. That's pretty crazy. Um, and um, here's some interesting things for you to think about when you're watching The Matrix. If you go back and, and watch it, you have to notice that there are two distinct colors to differentiate the worlds between what is the matrix and what is the real world. So the matrix has a green tint, which is very similar to how the, the people in the real world would see uh, the matrix when it's that green coded code, coded code, that green code that's like streaming from the top down to the bottom. Um, yeah, the Matrix itself, it's all filmed with this kind of green tint. Um, and that green tint is not like a bright green or anything. It's, it's sort of a dark, a very, very dark, hazy green. When you go back go back and watch um, the Matrix, you'll notice that there is that kind of green tint. And then the real world is sort of tinted blue. So, you know, when the, uh, any scene that is filmed in the real world, there is this kind of, again, sort of darkish blue um, hazy tone to it. So that's an interesting um, creative choice. And I never actually picked that up until I read something about it. And I was like, oh, that's actually really, really clever. I should have picked up on that because usually I pick up on um, how directors decide to light certain scenes and light certain uh, shots. But I suppose like what I'm looking for in that instance, I'm looking at shot by shot, not necessarily like um, going from one world to another. I guess I'm just a bad uh, film reviewer. <laughs> so uh let, let me get into the nitty-gritty of this f- film um i'll sort of start from the beginning make my way through all the the major uh parts of this film and i'll talk about each part and i'll also talk about the things that i feel didn't really work in this film um 
which is a little bit of a surprise for me. I, knew, I never thought that this movie would have quite a few issues um, that I would pick up. Um, yeah, there, there are some issues that I have with this film, but they're not they're not major issues. Ultimately, this movie is still spectacular, and I still think it's one of the greatest films ever made. If if not, it could be the greatest film ever ever made. Who knows? It depends on how you would actually um, measure that. Uh, but yeah, nonetheless, let's like start from the beginning and make our way all the way to the bottom all the way to the end of this film. So we start off with this uh, um, very mysterious plot, right? Um, we <clears throat> we open up the Matrix with this dialogue between Cypher and Trinity. Um, this kind of sets up this mystery behind the plot of the film. And um, that mystery we, we find out later is the Matrix. But obviously there's more that unfolds from what is the Matrix and how this plot eventually starts to pick up pace um, let's say in the third act of the film is when it really picks up pace. And I think that's where it gets far more exciting. Um, so I, I love how we do open up the movie though, with this really ambiguous dialogue between two characters. We don't know their names yet, but we learn later on that it's Cypher and Trinity. Um, it's a very, very bizarre conversation and it's like a computer screen and, um, there's sort of a bunch of words going across, no, not a bunch of words, sorry. There's um, some text and some code going across the computer screen and then it gets into it. Um, and then we get into the opening scene and the opening scene is with Trinity, a bunch of agents and they're all, and Trinity is trying to hack into something. We don't know what Trinity is trying to hack into, um, but she's sitting on the laptop or a computer. Is it a laptop? I don't know. <laughs> it's a 90s laptop. Um and while she's trying to hack into something that we're unsure about, uh, we see our first mind-blowing s- slow-mo scene, which is with the famous Trinity flying kick. I mean, that, that scene <laughs> there really starts to set the style of this film. Um, I remember when I, when I, I, I won't say when I first watched it, but I'll, I'll say when I, yeah, I, I guess when I did first watch it, but also when I'm, a little bit older and going back to rewatch it for a second time when I think when I was like 15 years old or something watching that scene, I was like, what is this? What am I looking at? I, I had no idea what I was looking at. And I think anybody that watches this film for the first time as an adult will still look at that and go, huh, what is the, what is the idea behind this kind of choice? Or what is the idea behind this kind of stylized filmmaking? Because Remember, at this point, we don't know what the Matrix is. We don't know that this world is actually fake. This world is the Matrix. We don't know that the, the, that the filmmakers are going to take us into uh, differentiating the two worlds between the real world and the Matrix. So all of this is just so bizarre to watch. You're kind of like, uh, <laughs> where, where are they going with this? Are they trying to show us some kind of innovative uh, martial arts scene or something? <laughs> It's pretty cool, but it, but I think um, what makes it really work as well is um, uh, what makes the uh, the vagueness and the mystery really work is is the setting itself, um, the lighting choices, the costume choices as well. Um, all of that stuff really plays a part in how these scenes become received in a way that you're like, oh, okay, it's not. 
it's not just the fact that there's this person suspended in midair doing a flying kick to an officer, but it's it's that and more. And that more is just everything that's coming together, cinematography, costume, sound effects, um, and just the look of the characters, right? Um, that all comes together in the scene. And so um, Trinity is, is on some kind of mission um, to get some information in this laptop. Um, she jumps on the phone after like kicking the ass of like all these officers that break into the door. Um, she gets on the cell phone. <laughs> I like how it's a flip phone. You kind of know what era we're in. <laughs> it's a flip phone. I'm pretty sure it was like Motorola or something. They might've had a hand in sponsoring this film. Um, she gets on the phone. She, she talks to somebody on the other, on the, on the other side that we learn later to be Morpheus um, and she says something like, uh, someone's cut the hard line and then Morpheus says, you need to get out of there. Um, and then Trinity says, are there any agents? And then he said, he says, yes. And then he says something like, um, there's a phone in Wellesley Lake. I think it's like Wellison Lake or something like that. You can make it. And then at that point she sprints out of the room and she just runs like nonstop. I'm like, God damn. Like she's like some kind of marathon runner or something. Cause like she doesn't even slow down. She's just got the same pace. As she's running through the hallway, she makes her way up the staircase and goes onto the roof. And she's just like running like this crazy Olympian. <laughs> like this is not a noble film because like she doesn't seem to be puffed out. She doesn't seem to like slow down in pace. And then she like jumps a whole building, like a whole street. Um, uh, she jumps like this gap um, from one building to another. That gap is the size of the width of a street literally and i'm like what <laughs> it's like and that and that's not necessarily slow-mo it's 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 trying to give you the sound effects of slow-mo but it's still well it's definitely not like real time but it's it's faster than the slow-mo that we just got previously to the scene um but it was so incredible how they captured the scene because the camera goes above trinity and she's kind of like doing this slow-mo um, if, if I had a video right now and you could see me, if I had this on YouTube, you'd see I'm trying to like replay that, that run in the air. <laughs> um, yeah, she's kind of like doing this, uh, slow-mo run in the air only to just land to the other side of the building. And she does this like roll flip to break the landing. I was like, and I'm like, what is this? It's like, it's, it's getting more and more exciting, but I have no idea what I'm getting excited about. It's, it's all purely, um, uh, visual entertainment at this point with obviously the mystery of the where the story is going so it's it's a great scene of her just running away from these agents these agents um we we find out these agents can do the same thing they can run just as fast and jump buildings <laughs> um absolutely incredible and yes this is like the second time that we get these groundbreaking visuals i mean no wonder Warner brothers were like all right, we messed up when we gave you $10 million. Here's $80 million so you can make the greatest film ever. <laughs> um, incredible opening scene. I, I actually wonder how much did they change after getting the $80 million to finish off the film. I wonder how much they changed in that opening scene from the $10 million they used. Yeah, that, that'll be interesting. Yeah, so, so from there, Trinity is looking for an exit, and we find out that an exit is a telephone booth. Um, and I'm like, okay. So she runs to the telephone booth, picks up the phone, um, 
and then she puts her hand on the wind uh, on the on the glass and the reason why she puts her hand on the glass is because like bef- well, before that we see a truck swivel into position um and then angles itself towards the phone booth and clearly like they're sitting up so that we can see that this truck is going to run into the phone booth and then trinity's standing adjacent to that whole thing and then the phone rings and she runs directly towards it while the the truck is going directly towards the phone booth and at that point you're like okay this is not a normal film she's literally running to her death um (laughs) so she grabs the phone she holds her hand out like in an attempt to like you know maybe block herself from the truck i'm like yeah good good block right there but i mean you can jump buildings so maybe you can also hold back trucks i don't know um she stands there but then she disappears when the truck like smashes and obliterates the foam foam booth and um and, and this is where this whole mysterious story sinks in really well because at that point i'm kind of like okay there's a bunch of shit that just happened um there's superpowered beings they can jump roofs they can slow down time and kick people in midair um and Trinity's like a marathon runner and so is the agent and they all look really cool and they all sound cool and I don't know where the story is going. So I'm in. <laughs> That's pretty much the opening scene. I don't think there's any, well, at least in my experience of watching film, I don't think there's any film that's ever done this type of opening scene where they literally give you nothing, right? They give you nothing, but you keep they keep you so interested enough to buckle in for a huge ride. Because um, you can anticipate that this is much bigger than what you see in this opening scene. They established enough of the movie's plot, wrapped in total mystery, but still managed to pull through in its clever script and spectacular visuals, which is all in this like opening scene. I'm pretty sure the opening scene is only like five minutes or whatever it might be. But it's it's such a riveting start to a story. I'm like, oh, that's, that's pretty damn cool. Um, so, you know, moving on from there, we meet Neo for the first time. Um, uh, the, the mystery actually continues with um, Neo, our main character, that's going to carry us through the entire story. Uh, he's also sort of playing the audience's part as well, right? And this is what I love about storytelling, when you can use a main character as sort of the conduit for us to understand what's going on in the film. Um a movie that comes to mind that does a similar technique is Inception. Um, we use uh, Alan Page's character, or sorry, they use Alan Page's character as the audience's eyes um, and the audience's perspective for us to understand the story. So it's exposition done vicariously through a character that's also learning about the story. Um, so I love that type of storytelling. I think it's 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 still... a uh, perhaps a heavily underused technique in modern day filming. I think people need to use that more, especially if you kind of suck at telling stories. <laughs> so yeah, anyway, um, um, this is that same formula, that same technique. And so we meet Neo and um, he receives a scripted message on his, on his uh, computer. Um, and for someone who has a talent in hacking computers, I mean, I'm just kind of, assuming that this guy's a hacker just because of the way his like desktop is is filled up and he's got a bunch of books that um 
almost allude to that kind of characteristic for someone who would have like hacking abilities. And he just looks like a nerd. So I'm like, yeah, he's a hacker, whatever. And for some reason he cannot exit his screen when it's been hacked by a cryptic message. Um, and, and the cryptic message says, follow the white rabbit. I mean, there's more in those, uh, in that text on his computer. Um, actually, I think the first text is, um, hello, Neo, um, the matrix has you, and then the last text, it says, follow the white rabbit. Oh, sorry, no, that's, that's not the last thing. It says, follow the white rabbit, and then it says, knock, knock. And then somebody knocks on this door. And and I think this the, the whole mysterious plot just gets better and better and better. And I'm like, oh, this is so good. It's We're on kind of like this journey to figure out um, a murder mystery, except without the murder. I love that. I love that. So somebody knocks on the door, and um, it's a bunch of guys who – have clearly been dealing with um, with uh, Nia, and it turns out I am right. He's like a hacking genius. Um, he's he's got this file that he's used, not used, but he's got this file for a bunch of people who are dealing with him, and they give him a bunch of cash or whatever. Um, but then it turns out that the girlfriend with that guy that's receiving the tape or that piece of data um, has the white rabbit as a tattoo on her shoulder, and then because they they offered to take him out, and he says no at first. What does it say no at first? I actually can't remember. Anyway, he hesitates. Let's say that he hesitates, but then he sees the white rabbit, and he's like, yeah, I'll go. And so he goes with him. Um, but this is kind of the um, – it's, it's somewhat of a MacGuffin, right, the white rabbit. The white rabbit. Um, he uses that to figure out where does this message come from, where does this cryptic message come from, and we – we find out that it's from Trinity herself um, who sent that message and she's basically there to say to him things like, uh, it's the question that brought you here. What is the matrix? Um, well, actually, Neo says, what is the matrix? Um, and then Trinity says something to the effect of, the answer is out there, Neo, and it, and it will find you if you're looking for it. Um, the, the case, so the thing, the, I have a little bit of an issue with this part. Um, and even watching the rest of the film, they still don't really answer this. Um, and it's it's purely a nitpick. Like by no means this is like change my perspective of the film. It's just it's purely a nitpick, but it did bother me. Um, when Neo says, what is the Matrix? I'm sort of wondering the same thing. What is the Matrix? But wait, first, how did you even understand that question? How did you even come across the word the matrix and they don't even touch they don't even sort of tie up that loose end in the entire film you you have to just presume or maybe infer that the matrix is just something that people within the matrix already knows or at least like a select few people i suppose for somebody like neo who is a computer hacker has has always been caught up in all sorts of things online and the internet and that period probably would have been such a scarce thing and any information that you're sourcing through uh scarcity medium such as the internet during the 90s you're probably going to investigate a little bit more maybe become a conspiracy theorist or whatever <laughs> um i had to sort of think hard about how did he even come across the question or the how, first of all how did he come across the word the matrix or matrix and how did he even get to that question? What is the matrix, right? So, it's 
it's a bit of an epic, but it kind of bothered me. I was like, oh, well, how does he even know about this word? Um, and, and I know that he's looking at articles and stuff. So, so all of it's really just like things that you'd have to infer as a viewer. But anyway, it just it, for some reason it stuck to me, and I was like, yeah, that's a little bit annoying. <laughs> um, uh, so then, for, then from there, we we meet Morpheus, who guides Neo. We don't meet him um, uh, in person at this stage. We just meet him through the phone because he uses the phone to call Neo when Neo receives a package when, while he's at work. Actually, before I jump to that, but there is a scene that opens up this next part. Um, and that scene is like he's talking to his boss because he was late to work, um, and. When he's talking to his boss, his boss is basically just telling him off for being late, telling him that you think you're a hot shot, you think you're so smart, and you think you're so good at your work, but I can't have you being late all the time. It was a really, really odd scene. I'm like, okay, this <laughs> this, this instance of him getting told off by his boss had nothing to do with his character, had nothing to do with where the story was going. I just thought it was such a random piece of information. It's like, okay, you're late to work. Do you really need to have that in the film, though? Do you need to have a, a scene where the where the, the director or the manager is going to tell, tell your main character off? Because I, I actually thought it was going to have something to contribute to the story, but it really didn't. I was like, the only thing that contributed to it was the fact that they came. he came back to that room. Well, I think he comes back to the same room as a way to escape. Um, it was really weird. Um, there is there is like a, a window cleaner on a scaffold, which is the same scaffold that he's supposed to use to get out to escape, which he doesn't eventually use. But then I'm kind of thinking, did they really just do that scene so that we could see that there's a scaffold outside? It, it was just such an odd thing. And it just, it just made no sense. It didn't contribute to the story. And I was like, that was just, Really a waste of time, a waste of piece of dialogue. Anyway, so we get into the real scene where he, he receives the phone and he gets a, gets a phone call from Morpheus and, um, and Morpheus is going to be his guide to escaping the agents who turn up to his work um, to arrest him. Um, and th- this also just continues with the the vagueness of the story. There's this mystery around the Matrix and we're sl- as viewers, we're slowly figuring it out what is the matrix is the matrix like um some kind of world that we're unfamiliar with that we don't know about whatever um the matri- uh, the mystery just continues um and so he guides neo throughout the office to get away from uh the agents and neo's like how do you know all this how do you know where i'm supposed to go and like you know use some kind of security camera and, and as a viewer you're kind of wondering the same thing you're like how does this guy know everything? Is this guy like God or something? So first of all, we have these super-powered characters that can jump roofs and um, spin themselves in midair. <laughs> and everybody looks really cool the way they're dressed. They always wear sunglasses, even though it's like not sunny. Um, and now you have this guy who seems to be God that can guide you everywhere. He's got eyes everywhere. <laughs> it, it, it definitely just furthers the mystery, but the mystery is just as exciting as like wanting to... like. Um, you know, figure it out. <laughs> so he's guiding Neo through um, and he says, go out to the scaffold and watch Neo says, he says, no, 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 no. But then he tries, he gets outside the window, um, tries to walk around the ledge of the window, tries to go over to the scaffold, 
drops his phone, and then he basically chickens out, and then he gets arrested by a bunch of agents. So the 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 weird thing is that um, I ha- I actually had to realize this when I watched it tonight. Um, I realized that it's it's such a weird thing that we would. When I say we, like everybody that watched this film for the first time, just accepted the fact that these agents were authority or like some kind of legal authority. Not once did I think, huh, why are some guys in suits who don't declare who they are have some kind of authority around the city? That should be the biggest hint, actually, in this film that these guys are these guys are operating under like circumstances that are not in the real world. And so when I think about this, I'm like, oh, that's actually the biggest hint to this to the story before we find out that the Matrix is fake, is that the world is fake itself because the agents, we don't know who they are, they're not they're not people that carry around any badge of authority. They're just a bunch of guys in suits. I'm like, that's actually the biggest giveaway. And I thought about that tonight. I was like, huh. The answer was like right in our face, right at the beginning of the film. <laughs> um yeah, so they capture Neo, they take him into an interrogation. And in this interrogation scene, this is definitely the first piece of evidence that we that we get for this world being fake. Because um, the dialogue's great, by the way, in this scene. It's really, really good. Um, we, we find this... Neo just has... Um, he has this line where he says... Um, how about I give you this? And he pulls a finger and, and then he says, and my phone call. And then agent Smith's like, uh, what use is a, what good is a phone call if you're unable to speak? And then this is when we get that sort of, uh, outer world experience. And like this, 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 uh, this moment of like, yeah, this is not a real world because, um, Neo's mouth gets sewed or it just gets like glued magically glued together like this but his top and bottom lip just merge together and then he can't speak it's so bizarre and i'm like oh this is the first piece of evidence that we get that this is not a real world um and then he's trying to like he's trying to like talk and he can't because like his his mouth is completely sealed um and then they put him on the table they get out this like um this sort of mechanical tube and then it the mechanical tube just like morphs into this squid not a squid but in some kind of parasite and goes into his stomach and he's like freaking the hell out and then he wakes up and you think it's a dream and i'm like what <laughs> it was a dream oh uh, but then of course like the scene directly after that shows us that it's actually not a dream so <laughs> it's it's really it messes with your mind a lot because 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 that's the first time that i receive a piece of evidence that this is fake but then but then they, the directors subvert that expectation or they subvert that guess, the experience by saying that it was actually a dream when he wakes up. But then it turns out it wasn't a dream, so there was another subversion to that. And I was like, huh. I think at this point I can see why people were confused about this story. Um, but, you know, going back to what I was saying before, the movie, the story is actually very linear. It's just these small moments of subverting things and sort of misdirecting the audience that probably made people confused. Um, so yeah, the story just gets weirder and weirder at this point. Um, 
And where there's only really a couple of things we know. Um, Trinity is playing mind games with Neo, or that's what it seems like. Um, the agent, the agents want Morpheus, and we only find this out during the interrogation scene. Um, and Morpheus is a terrorist, apparently. <laughs> so uh, that's the only real thing that we know for sure. Um, Morpheus says to Neo that you are the one. Um, and the moment he tells him you are the one, that line alone shows us that the story starts to sink its feet into the ground. Now Neo has to discover a purpose um, that is, uh, he has to discover a purpose uh, which becomes way less vague because this whole time we're sort of, um, we're, we're kind of jumping from from one thing to another and there's no real connection, I suppose. I mean, there's a connection between the characters and what they're saying, but as far as the story goes, there's nothing really there for us to connect the pieces to go, oh yeah, this is what the story is about. But for me, the moment that Morpheus says you are the one, then I'm like, okay, now we have a road. Now we have a purpose for the story. The story is going to turn out to be that Neo is discovering what it means to be the one. And that's literally what the whole story is about. Um, uh, and and the, the good thing about this, this piece of line that he says, like Morpheus is 100% committed to his belief at Neo being the one. And he demonstrates that so well in this film. And I, I think um, I'm kind of right in saying this when when I feel like a character like Morpheus is very understated in this film. When you ask people, like, who are, the fav- who are your favorite characters from the first Matrix? I think everyone's going to say Neo, Trinity, um, and maybe Morpheus third. But I would actually put Morpheus at number one. Might be a controversial statement, but to me, Morpheus was the best character in this film. Like, Neo is cool, and I love his journey, but I think the way Lawrence Fishburne commits the role, um, his expression through Morpheus, it's so, it's just so sharp. And I don't think I've ever seen, I mean, I shouldn't say that. I'm kind of exaggerating there. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, I don't think I've ever seen anybody play Morpheus like that before. <laughs> That's not true because clearly no one's played Morpheus before. But, I mean, he's created a good standard for Morpheus and we know that there's a new guy playing a different version of Morpheus in Matrix 4. Um, So that's going to be really hard to live up to, but whatever. Um, Yeah, I I think Morpheus is incredible in this film. He's actually my favorite character in this film. Um, Morpheus says something like, um, let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain. Can't? Can't explain. Um, so this is like, you know, when they've take, they're taking Neo into um, like some kind of like abandoned hotel, whatever, um, just to really explain to Neo why you're here and uh, give you all these kind of existential questions, <laughs> philosophical questions about life and whatnot. It's, it's actually a really, really cool scene. I really enjoy it. Um, and it's the first time we see Morpheus in the flesh. Um, then Morpheus says some, oh no, sorry. Um, yeah, sorry. Morpheus says this, he says, the matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even, even now in this very room, it is a world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. These, these statements are very philosophical statements. And no wonder why there's a lot of film schools or there's a lot of, um, 
film subjects within high schools and colleges or whatever that study the matrix because they try and pull pull apart a film like this that is heavily girded and and covered in philosophical literature and uh, even religious lit- literature, if you want to really dive in deep with um, the religious overtones. But anyway, I'm not here to do that. I'm here to just review the film. <laughs> um, but very powerful statements from a character who um, is committed to the cause, a, a character who's committed to his mission and he wants to see his mission through, even if that means sacrificing his life. So, um, and we see that sort of later on in the film. Um, and here, here we start to learn also about how there's someone like Neo, or actually anybody for that matter, is given a choice um, between choosing from the real world and choosing the Matrix. And that choice comes in the form of a pill. Um, and there's two pills here. And this is... This is something that I didn't actually pick up until way later on. Um, definitely didn't pick it up in the first screening or in like my times watching it as a teenager. Um, and I'm talking about the explanation of the pill. Uh, <laughs> I didn't. I had no idea why this magic pill what, like had some kind of magic power to allow them to go down that pathway of whatever that pill was providing right so we know that neo takes the red pill and then um morpheus morpheus explains what the pill does um he says something along the lines of the pill is part of a trace program designed to disrupt your input and output carrier signal so we can pinpoint your location um (laughs) that's it's such a heavy piece of dialogue um especially if you're watching for the first time and I'm not surprised that I missed it the first few times because, uh, yeah, at that point I'm like I'm just ready to jump into this world, whatever it is um, that you're that Morpheus is talking about, and get away from this because there's a little bit of a pace that picks up from their dialogue, um, sitting across from each other while he explains what the Matrix is and what the real world is. He starts to pick up a little bit of pace once he takes the pill, and then he tells him that the pill is a trace program designed to disrupt. Um, input out put carrier blah, blah blah anyway so they he needs to take that pill in order for them to pinpoint his location and pinpointing the location is uh it's somewhat of a program right um and they're trying to find out where his consciousness i mean they don't say this but i'm i'm trying to sort of piece it together myself is they're trying to trace where his real consciousness sits because if we strip back everything that makes us a human being what's left is probably consciousness um and um, there's a cool line that Morpheus says here as well before he gets he goes down the rabbit hole. And he says, have you ever had a dream, Neo, that you were so sure was real? Um, <laughs> there's just so many good lines of this. So do so many good lines. Um, and anyway, so, so Neo wakes up from the Matrix and we discover that the real world is under enslavement by a bunch of machines, a bunch of AI. Um, welcome to the real world kind of thing. Or I should say, welcome to the poor world. <laughs> it's like humans have become poor and poor slaves to AI and machines. And um, I, I think seeing that for the first time, I I, I wasn't surprised. Like, because you're, you're going along for the ride, you know, everything is sort of expositional storytelling up until this point. 
and then when Neo wakes up from the Matrix and he gets unplugged and everything and he sees that he's just another human being that's being used for something that we don't really know until later on when there's another massive expositional piece that Morpheus takes us through. Um, yeah, we're just human beings that have been enslaved for centuries. Um, so, yeah, what, what, now we're in the real world. And this is when the movie slows down dramatically. Like, we, we know where the sto- what the story is about. We know now that there's two different worlds that exist, the Matrix and the real world. And um, we spend quite a bit of time in this moment, and the story really, really slows down. The pace really slows down. Um, and then slowly, like there's, there's there's kind of a transition of time passing with um, them doing an, an analysis on on Neo because Neo has been awakened. He's been unplugged from the Matrix, and so he has to try and get used to his limbs and get used to his sight. Um, I mean, there's a specific line that Neo says: "Is um, why do my eyes hurt?" And then Morpheus says, uh, "Because you've never used them." Um, so all that stuff are really cool sort of nuggets that make you start to believe, not, not just believe, but invest in this, uh, concept that the Wachowskis are giving us. Um, very, very cool. So there's a, there's a bit of like time that passed and some sort of clever film techniques to show us that time is passing in order for Neo to really get out of that old skin and get out of that, um, get out of that dream that dream world that is the matrix and get used to the real world um and so from there we, we get into a program or morpheus takes neo through the program to explain what the matrix is and this is where the biggest exposition happens now i have a little bit of an issue with the way the exposition is held in um held in this instance um like i said the film slows down a lot and when we get to this part um, you know the part that I'm talking about. You know they're in the white room. It's it's the program that's not in the matrix and it's not the real world. It's just literally a program they created in order for him to explain to a new person. In this case, it's Neo. What the matrix is. Um, the first thing that I noticed is that the the audio is actually quite bad. Now it, it, it could have. It's possible that it was my sound system, but I try to even change some of the parts of my sound system. But the audio is actually quite bad. Like everything is so loud and you can barely hear Morpheus. <laughs> like Morpheus is having, he's, he's got like this, this critical time where he's like talking about the matrix. You know, he's kind of like that, like important public figure who is about to say the most important message, but you, you can't hear him because there's a lot of sound effects happening in the background. That's what it sounded like in this movie. I was like, what has the audio been this bad the whole time? Maybe that's why the story went over people's head because they just couldn't hear Morpheus. <laughs> um, but anyway, that was kind of the first thing I noticed. I was like, wow, this is terrible. This is not very good. But again, I don't know. I take it back if it is if it is my audio and it sounds better on, like in your experience. Anyway, whatever. Uh, that was the first thing. And then the second thing is like there's, there's this massive quote-unquote factual explanation that Morpheus gives about um, humans producing over 250,000, um, uh, yeah, over 250,000 BTUs, which is like body heat. Um, and also talks about like how 
where we can be the equivalent to like a battery or something like that. Some of those lines, but the, the crazy thing is that like <laughs> they're actually pretty wrong about how like BTUs work in the human body. Um, it's weird because I've like, I've kind of known stuff like this and the law of like thermodynamics and and um, the second law of thermodynamics, for example, is that nothing operates at 100% efficiency. So if the robots, if that AI is looking for um, human beings as a substitute for uh, energy, not as a substitute, but you know, using human beings to uh, produce energy for their own kind of crazy AI purpose, um, human beings cannot produce that much. And especially... Like we don't have two hundred fifty thousand um, BTUs, the human body only produces up to like two fifty to four hundred BTUs, and that's at a resting rate. And you notice that you know all the human beings that are enslaved, they are in a resting rate. They're asleep, <laughs> so they're not operating at all at maximum efficiency. Um, but even at maximum efficiency, we only go up to like six thousand, ten thousand. So that still pales in comparison to a Morpheus was saying when it's like 250,000 BTUs. <laughs> um, and then on top of that, it's like we don't operate under 100% efficiency. The human, human beings operate at like 25% efficiency. Um, so even if you wanted to use human bodies to produce that much heat in one day, it would take three human batteries to heat an average home. So, yeah, clunky, like super, super clunky. And I think this is where probably people that very much um, pay attention, strict attention to storytelling and exposition, they'll look at this part and notice that it's super clunky and probably do some fact checking on it as well. Um, and I think the disappointing thing is that if you, if you look, if you know about this type of stuff, especially like if you know anything about thermodynamics, you'll probably check out of the film in regards to its story because the story almost like collapses when you find out that the reasons behind why the matrix exists is because AI has taken over and are using human beings as a source of energy. But that completely falls apart when you find out the real facts. <laughs> so I'm sorry if I ruined the story for you, but um, um, yeah, it's it's just unfortunate. It's one of those kind of like, um, breaking of the fourth wall, uh, uh, not breaking of the fourth wall, but, um, it's just what, yeah. Oh, actually I was going to say it's one of those scenarios of breaking of the fourth wall for, um, like meta storytelling or something like that. Um, or plot, plot holes. <laughs> it's, it's very unfortunate. So unfortunately it just like, yeah, the whole narrative just collapses at that point when, you figure that out. Anyway, let's just move on from that clunky point. But, you know, apart from the facts itself, I just think the whole exposition for the plot was, it's just too clunky. It was all dumped into like five minutes or whatever it was, that whole scene in the program. I I think if uh, the Wachowskis spent a bit more time spreading the exposition through the same way that they're doing at the beginning of the film, with the mystery and sort of the chase for um, the chase to find answers, whether it's like Neo or Trinity or, um, or even Morpheus, you know, cause they're all like looking for answers. Morpheus is looking for that answer of like 
Neo being the one, even though he believes that Neo is the one, but he still has to discover the answer. Um, Trinity is trying to find the answer to, I guess, her love life when she finds out later on that she has feelings for Neo, but also um, wanting to be a good sort of, let's say, soldier um, to the purpose and to the cause, which is to find the one. And Neo is trying to discover whether he isn't the one, or he's also just trying to discover what is the Matrix. That's his first objective. So I think if the Wachowskis actually continue to do that type of storytelling rather than get us to that point of like, now we know what the matrix is. Now we know what the real world is. Let me tell you again, or not let me tell you again, but let me tell you word for word what the matrix is. So it's, it's massive exposition. I just think it's too clunky. And I think they could have spread it out throughout the film the same way they did in the first part. But yeah. Um, yeah. That's my little take on that whole part. So I think this is probably like this whole midsection of the film is like the weakest part of the film. Um, so, you know, moving on from there, we get Morpheus fighting Neo for the first time and um, Mouse, who runs into, like, the dining hall or the dining room where everybody else is sitting. And he says, uh, Morpheus is fighting Neo. And then everybody, like, drops everything they're doing is, like, something they've been wanting to see because clearly, like, Neo is, like, the prophesied one. So they want to see how he does against Morpheus, who is presumably the best fighter at all of them with the most experience. And, I'll, uh, like... Okay, so the fight scene itself is is fun and exciting, but what I actually find more exciting is just the the continuation of like existentialism motifs, <laughs> such as like uh, the, and this you know Morpheus is like the person that that delivers these lines, and he's like the perfect person to do it because um, he's got the tone, he's got the the mellow drama behind it, but it's not like bad mellow drama. He's got the um, it's 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 a very kind of godly attribute the way he delivers the lines, and, and I think that's the whole point, right? So one of the lines he does is like, "Do you think that's air you're breathing?" Um, I'm trying to free your mind, Neo. Um, all that type of stuff is just is such great, such great scripting, and it's all to do with the story itself. It's great because Neo is trying to figure this whole thing out, right? The same way that we're trying to figure it out, and the questions and the statements. Um, propel us in that direction of going oh okay this is uh this is a story that requires a lot of questioning (laughs) um so we go from that program to the jump program which is the first time that we get to get the jump well we don't get the jump explained but um the jump program i guess is the the training program that everybody learns to jump buildings and shit like that um i'm like man i want those programs maybe in the future we are able to get into like these types of programs, actually, we're not too far. I mean, you know, I guess like VR is the solution to that. Um, but I haven't actually done a lot of VR. I do want to play some VR games. But um, yeah, he does the jump program, and and um, everybody knows that everyone that tries the jump program for the first time fails. And everybody, like word for word, says, "Oh yeah, he's going to fail." And then Mouse Mouse is like, "Well, what if he what if he doesn't?" And then everybody else is like, he will, he will, he will. <laughs> um, and the other person that's rooting for him is Trinity. You have like this one loyal um, soldier or, you know, loyal person to the cause, Trinity. She's like, come on, come on. You're like under her breath. She doesn't want to like vocally say it because I guess she might be, she's probably like a little bit embarrassed or a little bit shy to say that, you know, Nia is going to make it. But she's she's an, she's just that another the other person that believes in the cause. So she's like rooting for him. He tries to go for the jump, doesn't make it. Um, 
And so he falls like uh, he falls so far, hits the ground, and he goes through the ground, and then sort of springboards back up. Um, and they go back into the real world, and it sh- and it, and they show us that he's bleeding; his mouth is bleeding. Um, and then he's like, "I thought it wasn't real." Um, and then Morpheus says, "Your mind makes it real." And then Neo asks, "If I'm killed in the Matrix, do I die here?" And then Morpheus again, without a, without even like he could have just Morpheus could have just said, "Yes, you die in the real world," but instead he answers it by saying, um, "Your body cannot live without the mind." And I'm like this guy, this guy just doesn't stop. <laughs> he can't rest his his uh, his like prophetic messaging or whatever it is. Uh, it's kind of crazy. So they go from there to another program, which I'm just going to call the Lady in the Red Dress program. And this program is about teaching Neo, um, teaching Neo about the people within the Matrix and how they're not ready to be unplugged. They're part of the Matrix, which makes them our enemy. Um, the best part in the scene, though, is Morpheus's line. Again, another line from Morpheus. Um, when he says, "When you're ready, you won't have to," and he's responding to what Neo says. Neo says, um, "What are you saying? That I can dodge bullets?" He says, "When you're ready, you won't have to." And that's obviously foreshadowing what happens at the at the end of the film. Um, it's interesting because the the program, well, just this whole lesson with Neo when he's learning about what is the matrix oh yeah learning about what is the matrix and also learning about people that are in the matrix i just wonder if they're going to touch up on this type of stuff later on in matrix resurrections because basically morpheus is saying that there are people that are not ready to be unplugged right i i wonder if if matrix resurrections is about unplugging the rest of humanity i don't know like there isn't really any clear idea other than this um you know there isn't well at least for for me there isn't a clear idea as to why these people aren't ready to be unplugged um maybe it's because it's down to their own kind of journey within the matrix because if you think about neo neo is like a person that was um like heavily investigating what the matrix is um and we know that's his whole uh, character arc but um i mean is everybody else never ever going to have an inquiry about the matrix <laughs> so they just remain unplugged because because the cause that they're fighting for is this whole cause of like freedom for the human beings and freedom from the machines so you know and i know neo is supposed to be the one to free everybody um so you know, once Neo frees everybody, then everybody gets unplugged. But but then it just seems like counterintuitive when when you're sort of presupposing that people have a choice to be unplugged because they haven't discovered the Matrix yet. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> I'm sort of thinking way too deep into it. But, I mean, I know that there's a lot of Matrix fanatics that could probably answer these questions because they're very into the lore of Matrix. Um. But yeah, I just thought that was such an interesting piece um, to Neo's training before he has to take on the agents. Uh, for there, we meet the Oracle, and the Oracle says like he's not the one. Um, <clears throat> but Morpheus believes that Neo is the one, um, so much so that he's willing to sacrifice his own life for it. Um, 
And um, Morpheus says to Neo, what was said for you was for you alone, which is a key piece of dialogue for him to remember because um, even if Morpheus didn't really know that he was or wasn't the one, um, he believes, like, again, we're going back to that belief, right? He believes in the cause. Um, And the Oracle, even the Oracle sort of straight up said, you aren't the one, she also says in the same sentence that um, Morpheus believes in something and he's willing to sacrifice his life for it. And then later on, Neo's like, oh, I don't think that's coincidental um, that she would say that. And then now he's actually going to sacrifice his life. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of a, it's a really interesting scene. And I thought that we were going to get more to that, but that scene is so, so short. And it almost seems like a scene that you didn't really need to have the Oracle. Um, This also might be a little bit controversial. For me, the Oracle in this film, I mean, I think the Oracle has a lot more to do in Reloaded and Revolutions. But in this film particularly, I don't understand the purpose that the Oracle serves. Other than the fact that you told Neo what he wanted to hear, which is he is not the one, while also telling us that the Oracle was like wrong or maybe not wrong. <laughs> I don't understand what the Oracle's purpose was at all in this film. And we see that lived out a little bit more in uh, two and three, for sure. A lot more for the Oracle to do, absolutely. But in this film, as a standalone, the Oracle was a little bit pointless. <laughs> And I and I will I will die on that hill. You know you can you can fight me for this one. I like I don't mind. Uh, yeah, the Oracle didn't really have anything to do because like even when they talk, even when Neo is talking to Morpheus about what the Oracle was saying or not, it ultimately really just came down to Neo's choice. Um, and Morpheus' belief. So it's like, well, the Oracle didn't really need to be in this movie. Um, and then from there we get into like deja vu, and we turn out it turns out that the deja vu thing is like a big trap. Um. You know, this is inside that kind of abandoned. I think it's the same. Is it the same building? Pretty sure it's the same building as when we first meet Morpheus. Um, they go up the staircase after meeting with the Oracle, and um, this is when we see Cipher's like dirty plan come to life. Like he's made a plan with the devil, uh, a plan, uh, a deal with the devil, which is uh, Agent Smith here, and he basically it's it's so. Okay, so, you know, we're not talking about... I, I said in the beginning that I do have a few issues, and I've already expressed some of those issues with this film already. They're, one of the issues I have with this as well, and I think this is the biggest problem in the movie, is Cypher. Cypher as a character. Now, Cypher as a character is, in so many ways, like the MacGuffin to the story. Because without Cypher's intervention to betraying his team... There wouldn't have been a Morpheus like sacrifice, and there wouldn't have been a rise to Neo being the one. <laughs> the story again falls apart. Um, you had to just like halfway through this film, we learned that Neo is the one, or supposedly the one, and. And then from then on, we're, we're not really sure where the story is going to go after that. Um, the story just pivots from 
us learning that he is supposedly the chosen one, and then it pivots straight to him being the oracle. And then after meeting the oracle, they get into this abandoned hotel or abandoned building, um, which is the one place that Cypher ratted out his team to um, to the agents. Uh, so, so that's when like the story takes a different type of direction to only fulfill what its intended purpose was. And its intended purpose was to show us that Neo is the one. But the way that they showed us that Neo is the one is by using this deal that Cypher had with Agent Smith um, in order for us to show the sacrifice that was foreshadowed in the beginning with Morpheus and then Neo saving the day and sort of pronouncing that he is the one. <laughs> this is this is this to me is like the weakest part of the film, and um, I, I mean I don't know how else they could have done. There's there's probably t- so many creative ways that they could have done with this, but it just seems it, it seems way too convenient that you'd have to use someone that is like um, a mole and not a mole because like a mole is someone who works for like the enemy already and then goes into the into the op opposing side but you know like he's just someone that never really believed in Morpheus's vision never believed in the in um the real world they're living in he's someone that was just greedy for like money and mansions and shit like that <laughs> like his motivation was really just so he could become rich um because that's literally what he says he's like I want, I want to be rich and I want to I want like he he lists like these materialistic things and I'm like huh like your motivation to doing this was really so you could get rich and have materialistic um, positions. That that to me was just super super weak. And with it, without him in the film or without his character and his um, his little deal, the the movie wouldn't have been like it wouldn't have taken that direction. It would have taken, I mean, whatever else someone could be creative enough to write into it. It just seemed. Like you have a really strong half to the film in terms of his narrative um, and all the mystery and stuff. And then the last half of the film, it's like it's it's a sort of predictable scheme between uh, one guy who's writing out his team just so he can have his own greedy needs and ends up killing everybody in his team. Um, but then he doesn't like <laughs> his purpose is 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 empty it's such an empty purpose and it's just such a boring cause um and the whole the you know the second half of the film just relies on cypher's deal to work out in order for morpheus to make that sacrifice i just think that was just so weak <laughs> it's like uh uh not really buying into this but hey we we get into some amazing visuals after that and we get into some amazing um action set pieces and that's what like pretty much the rest of the film is it's just a little bit more exposition by Agent Smith himself. Um, we're learning. We also actually here's actually a cool thing in this last half of the film. We learn that this is the first Matrix, which presupposes that there's, um, oh, they're, they're, sorry, that this isn't the first Matrix. It presupposes that there's been a bunch, but at this point, we only think that there's only been one prior to this. We don't learn until later, you know, through Matrix Reloaded, that there's like six matrix or something well this was like the sixth iteration um and then we also learn that agent smith is trying to get something um out of the matrix 
or he's trying to get something, which is get out of the matrix and get into Zion. So, so that that's a cool piece of arc for a villain such as Agent Smith. And, you know, he obviously had to use someone like Cypher to get in. So it does all connect really well. I just thought it was such a weak choice to get someone like Cypher who who had a very, very weak motivation. Um, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> so that's a, a small piece of exposition from Agent Smith. And then we get near solution behind this, which is him saying that um, he doesn't believe he's the one because that's what the Oracle said. But he believes in something else. And he says to Trinity, I believe that I can save Morpheus. And then this inevitably, it's like a foreshadow anyway. It's like inevitably it makes him the one because he's able to save Morpheus. Um, And this whole kind of saving Morpheus hero complex thing, I I wasn't too convinced in the fact that this was how he was going to prove himself to be the number one, to be the one. Um, I, I just kind of thought, well, being the one means that he's just someone who has to believe in the door that he has to walk through. <laughs> and um, and then he'll have magical abilities to dodge bullets and uh, um, save people from uh, jumping out of helicopters. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, not, not just dodging bullets, but also just um, holding bullets in midair. Uh, I didn't understand why that was the case and they don't really they don't explain that at all they don't explain like um this is the litany of reasons why you are the number why you are number one or let's say this is these are the litany of reasons as to how you have become number one you can dodge bullets because xyz and of course that probably would have bloated the script and would have bloated the storytelling and especially his arc but I just thought it was kind of, okay, well, we don't really know how he can do it. And they even say, they even like question it themselves. Like, how are you able to do that? Like, you know, Trini says, um, you move like they do. How did you even do that? <laughs> um, I've never seen anybody move that fast. And he's like, oh, not fast enough. But I'm like, yeah, I mean, how does he even do that? <laughs> how does he even like hold the bullets in midair? But you just kind of have to go along and you have to buy into his arc that because he's the chosen one, he can do all these magical things. Um, you know, and then all that stuff like happens, actually, I, I sort of brunch, brush past the foyer gunfight scene. Um, but you know, that gunfight scene is a very long gunfight scene <laughs> and it's cool. I mean, it's, it's a classic gunfight scene and a lot of people like see that as something that will go down in history as one of the greatest like gunfight action sequences. And it is cool. I do have a bit of a problem with some of the camera work though. This camera work is probably not as tight as I'd like it to be. There are some close-up shots that are very strange choices because um, I'm kind of like, well, wouldn't you want to do a wider shot for a better perspective so you can see, like, the debris and stuff around it? There's definitely a lot of wide shots, but there's a couple of shots, like, especially where he does the um, cartwheel, the one-handed cartwheel, and picks up the, the rifle. It's, it's a strange choice to, like, go in that close to his face where he's picking up the rifle rather than having a wider shot. I was like, that's just – that's a weird – that's an odd choice. Anyway, <laughs> um, a few of those instances, and there's a there's a bunch of other sort of close-up shots that are super strange. And I think they actually improve that when we see a very similar scene in Matrix Revolutions. They, I think they do a lot better in the cover. And, and actually thinking about Reloaded and Res, um, Revolutions, 
I think camera work was far better than what we see in the first Matrix, um, just in terms of how they um, shoot the action sequences. I think they do a, a better job in some of those films. But I'll get a a real fresh um, <laughs> a real fresh perspective once I watch them tomorrow and then review them for you guys. Um, yeah, so we get from that, and then the rest of it's like a, a rescue mission um, for the for the rest of the film. And the rescue mission is just really him rescuing Trinity and rescuing um, Morpheus. And then that's pretty much like the end of it. I mean, there is that last fight sequence between him and Agent Smith. And then the classic ending where he um, he holds the bullets in midair and then runs towards Agent Smith and then dives into him and then explodes kind of like Goku or something as, <laughs> as like Super Saiyan um, and kills Agent Smith or... We're led to believe that he's dead, but we know in the second film he's actually not dead. Um, and then after that, the agents run away, and then he has to rush back to the real world because the the computers or the the machines are coming to attack, and they need to use the EMT to shut them down. Um, and then he makes it back just in time. The scene opens up to him and Trinity having a good old pash. <laughs> um, I'm not. I'm not convinced whatsoever about their relationship. I mean, that's the other weak thing about this is that they have this like romantic relationship and this kind of connection. I didn't buy into it whatsoever. It's just there's there's nothing really developed around them becoming a romantic partner, um, a romantic partnership. It's just kind of wedged in there because you you know with any story you kind of have a have to have a love story, but the love, this love story is just like wedged in the middle of a great story that is the matrix. Um, yeah, I didn't buy it at all. I was like, 